We're in uh, a study working through the book of Romans, and I think Frank mentioned this. Uh, we decided to take a little bit of break for Easter, and then uh, a little bit of break again before we jump back into it in the next couple of weeks here. And um, what we decided was, before we fully jump back into the book of Romans, we stopped at about chapter 12, before we fully jump back in, it would be helpful to uh, take five weeks or so, which is what we're going to do, and uh, maybe fill in some of the foundational backstory of the gospel that Paul is actually referencing and commenting on in the book of Romans. So <clears throat> you can think of it as like, Paul in Romans is almost, he's almost acting as a, a, a narrator or a commentator for a, a plot, a story, right? Almost like someone was narrate or comment on uh, a plot of any movie or TV show that you might like, that you might watch, uh, and he's sort of filling in the gaps, he's, he's connecting dots for us, he's helping us see the full picture and helping us see how it all works together and the beauty of it together, and we realize, boy, if we don't have that foundational understanding of the backstory, then uh, we're going to be missing out on what's actually being said there, and we'll probably get an incomplete, if not totally false, understanding of, uh, of what's being said. So uh, we decided, okay, let's go back and fill in the backstory so that we have that foundational story. It's, it's, almost, like, it's almost like you're the person that uh, decides to watch, uh, pick any TV show you like. You're the, you're the person that decides to watch uh, Breaking Bad when the season finale comes on, or the series finale comes on, right? When everyone's talking about it, you're like, I never watched this show, but I think I'm going to watch it. And you watch it, and you're thinking, uh, so how did he get into drugs now? And who's this guy? And your friends are like, dude, go back and watch the series so you understand how we got here and what it's all about. And once you do, once you have a sense of the whole, then the pieces start to make sense, right? Once you have a sense of the overarching plot and how the narrative works together, you can enter into the different chapters and understand what's happening. Where if you don't have that sense, you can enter into the chapter, uh, you enter into a movie halfway through, and it might be interesting, but you don't really have the full sense of what that scene is all about. You don't have a sense of uh, the plot developments that are being tied up there. You don't have the, the rich beauty of all the pieces coming together, those types of things. Vice versa, you can then go back to, uh, I know with uh, everyone streaming television these days, you can go back and watch season one of your favorite TV show, and you get excited like, oh, this, that's where this developed. That's where they started suggesting that this was going to happen. That's where they were foreshadowing this. That's where this relationship came in. That's going to get resolved in chapter six, and you kind of get excited to see how all the pieces work together. So we want to give a sense of the whole because the sense of a whole helps us understand the parts, and then when we have a sense of the parts, we can go back and appreciate the whole all that much more. So and that's what we're doing in this series, kind of a, a survey through a lot of the themes of the Old Testament here. Um, and what we also understand as we approach this is not only is, is Scripture, in large part, not only is the gospel a story, a narrative, it's in fact a history, right? And we believe it is the history. We believe it is the true story of the whole world. Uh, and, and what we realize is that how we understand history and how we tell history actually has a shaping effect on us, right? Um, all of us grew up learning some American history that was cultivated for us. Uh, here's what we're going to talk about in the classrooms. Here's what we're going to highlight. And so we all got some sense of American history, and that understanding of American history shapes our understanding as who, of who we are as a people, right? And individually and collectively shapes our understanding of how we relate to this overarching thing called the United States of America and how the United States of America fits into the history of the world. All of us have a sense of that because of how history was articulated and how we learned it. Um, <clears throat> I remember watching the, uh, the Winter Olympics this last go-round, and they just made this passing comment, which was interesting, that uh, Vladimir Putin is in charge of overseeing the development of 
Russian history books in the classroom in Russia. And I thought to myself, it's just a hunch, but I think probably you're not going to find a lot of stuff about the gulags and Russia's crimes against humanity in those history books, right? There's going to be, my guess, uh, a pretty glossy, pretty rosy picture of, of Russian history for, for their people because um, if I know anything about Vladimir Putin, he's going to want to, he's going to, want to craft a certain image, right? And he's, he's going to want to shape his people by crafting a certain articulation of history that elevates the Russian people and that elevates them as um, really uh, the greatest nation in the world, the greatest nation of all time. What's interesting about that is as we read Scripture, and in particular as we read the section we're going to read today, um, if you were going to write a history of a nation to prop it up as the greatest people and greatest nation that ever lived, this is not the history you would write, okay? Because the, the Old Testament, uh, the, the articulation of the history of Israel, which is a, really an articulation of God's relationship to his people, starting with the his, nation of Israel, um, it is just filled with failure. There's really no other way to say it. It's, it's filled with spiritual failure, uh, moral failure, political failure, economic failure, all of these things. Um, uh, you don't get many gleaming examples of obedience and champions to worship in the Old Testament, right? So if you're going to write a history, if the, the critique of Scripture that this was just this manipulative book written to prop up uh, a certain people as the greatest people in the world, the greatest nation in the world, um, it just it falls apart here. Because although this book was written with a purpose to shape a people and to form a people and help them understand their relationship to God, it's not to prop up the nation of Israel. The book that we have here is not to prop up the nation of Israel. It's not to show how great Israel is. It's written to show how great God is. And so that's what's interesting about this history that we're going to read. And we want to get a full sense of the big picture so we can understand how the pieces work together. So where do we start? <clears throat> Excuse me. Where do we start in the story? Well, we start in the beginning, naturally, right? And in the beginning, uh, Scripture tells us, God created all things out of nothing, spoke all things out of nothing, and we presume upon creation in this series, uh, mainly because we only had so many weeks. We presume creation in this series, but we don't presume creation in our theology. It is critical that we have a deep, thick understanding of creation that a, a loving, personable, good, holy God spoke all things into creation out of nothing. And everything is his, and he has rightful authority over all things. And not only that, when he's spoken into creation, it was good. Creation is good. And we lose sight of that oftentimes. And there's still glimpses of that. There's still remnants of God's goodness in creation that we still see to this day. But if we know the story, we know that God creates all things good, including humankind. But humankind chooses to believe the lies of Satan and sacrifice their relationship with him to elevate themselves elevate their own will above his, and they reject his rightful authority. And they reject him, and as a result, sin and death enters the world. And as a result, sin and death spreads like a virus to every single corner of creation, every molecule of creation, every relationship, everything. And as a result, God's good creation is no longer as it should be, right? God's good creation is, is stained. God's good creation is distorted. And our relationships are distorted. Our relationship with God is broken, and our relationship with one another is broken. And it may seem strange to say this, but our relationship with ourselves is broken. We don't even understand our own identity anymore, and we wrestle with that. And our relationship with creation is broken. 
God's good creation is stained, is not as it should be. But of course, we know that God does not choose to abandon his creation. He doesn't choose to just scrap his good creation and say, oh man, that's not how I planned it to go. That went south. You know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to scrap this. I'm just going to annihilate this so that it doesn't exist anymore, and I'll just start a new one with different factors so that it goes a different direction. He doesn't say that. God instead says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to restore this. I'm going to redeem this. I'm going to set right what went wrong. I'm going to make all things new again. So God sets out a plan of redemption, sets out a plan of restoration. This is the gospel that we see, that we have a God who saves, that redeems, that restores all things. Okay? And so a couple weeks ago we looked at promise, and this is largely uh, where it begins. I'll just say this. It's... (laughs) It's almost criminal how fast we have to gloss over all of this today, uh, but, but I think it's important. I think it'll be helpful for us in the long run. But the promise that God makes begins with a man, really a, a nobody, uh, like you and I, if I could be so bold, um, a guy named Abram, right, whose name gets changed to Abraham. And he makes a promise to Abraham who has no children, uh, and God says, I'm going to give you children. I'm going to give you so many children, so many descendants, you won't even be able to count them. They're going to be like the stars in the sky. He says, through you, Abraham, and through your descendants, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. I'm starting my plan of restoration here with you, with this guy. Abraham, it starts with you. Here's what I need from you, Abraham. I need you to trust me, and I need you to follow me. I need you to trust me, and I need you to follow me. And of course, Abraham is a fallen human being, again, like you and I, and um, he has some successes, and he has his failures, right? He has moments where he chooses to trust God, and he has moments where he chooses to take things into his own hands. And we see both. And really, that sets up the pattern of how this is going to play out through the rest of the gospel, through the rest of Scripture, where God's going to call people and God's going to use people, and they're all going to be this mixture of successes and failures, except one, and that's Jesus Christ. But all the rest of us, and we'll see this pattern carry out more and more, all the rest of us as God uses us, it's this mixture of people striving to follow him and people failing, but God using him and his plan staying on track nonetheless. So we fast forward, again, uh, glossing over a ton, but we fast forward and we see that God's promise to Abraham blossoms now into a people. A people exists that God is going to call to be his own. There's only one problem. These people are in slavery, right? These people are in bondage. So we start to see all these themes develop already in the gospel. God says, I'm going to call the people to be my own, but I need to save them because they're in bondage in Egypt. And so God saves his people and calls them out of Egypt in miraculous ways that only he could do, right? These insane (laughs) miracles that God exercises over creation to bring his people out of Egypt so that there's no doubt where the power lies in this. There's no doubt who the Savior is. And who the victory belongs to. It's God. And God works in miraculous ways and calls his people out and he calls them to form them. Okay? He calls his people out to form them. Um, He is uh, bringing them into a land that he had promised to them. um, And he's going to make them his people. He's going to make them his people. 
And so we get this, as he's called his people out, we get this covenant, this promise to now the people of Israel. And this is a covenant at Mount Sinai, right? This is in the wilderness of after they have been brought out of Egypt, before they get into the promised land, God says this to his people. The Lord called out to him on the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and to the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God rescues his people from slavery. God rescues his people from bondage, and now he is forming them. He's instructing them on what it means to be his people. These people are going to be a light to the nations. These people are going to be a picture of restored humanity. They're going to be the people that have right relationship with God, that the rest of the nations look upon and say, that is how things were supposed to be. As people recognize something's wrong with this world, it's not as it's supposed to be because sin and death have stained it, and they look upon these people who are in right relationship with God and say, that is how it's supposed to be. Israel is called to be a light to the nations, and God is calling them and forming them and giving them instruction. This is, by the way, the context that we get the law in. This is the context that we get the Ten Commandments in, as God is giving them instructions, not this sort of arbitrary standard and hoops for them to jump through, but an understanding of what it means to live in right relationship with him, as restored humanity, as humanity should live. And so they're called to be set apart, different because they are the ones in harmony with the true and living God. Agents of justice, pointing the nations to worship the one true God. A kingdom of priests, facilitating and directing worship of the nations back to the one true God. And understanding this process, understanding, again, looking at this idea of formation, understanding that God is forming his people in this process and the purpose of formation is critical because as we enter into the part of the scripture that we're going to get today to today as they are um, taking the land and entering the land and living in the land, we see that God is testing his people. That language comes up quite a bit as we read through this, this part. God's testing his people, and there's a lot of connotations to that. And again, if we don't have a whole, the sense of the whole story, we can misread what that means or have a false understanding of why that's there or why that's happening. But if we understand that God's forming his people, we realize testing is a critical part of formation, is it not? Testing is an actual part of our formation. Again, not just hoops for God give people to, for them to jump through. He's, he's forming his people. He's calling them to be his own. And so he's forming them, he's testing them, um, he's refining them. And you realize this, you know, those of you who have children, let's say, you are, um, let's say you are in charge of helping your child grow in their math skills, right? You are forming a child in their understanding of mathematics and you're helping them grow. You realize that when there's problems that they don't fully understand, right, that they're struggling with, you don't say, hey, you know what, I know you, don't, you can't get that one. Let's just set that one aside. Let's go back to the two or three that you always get right, that you always have gotten right, and let's just do those over and over again, and every, we'll just all feel good about ourselves, right? That, has, <laughs> that doesn't work with formation, right? 
There's no active formation in that. And what you realize is those math problems that they can't get right, that they're struggling with, those are exactly the ones that you need to spend time on, right? If the child is to grow in their understanding and their maturity, those are exactly the ones that they need to spend time on. And so God is bringing them into the land, and he's recognizing there's going to be things in this land, as I send you in, there's going to be things in this land that are going to be a temptation for you. They're going to be false gods. They're going to be temptations. They're going to be treaties you're going to want to make. There's going to be fear that you, there's going to be all of these things that might get in the way of my relationship with you. And he's saying, Here's, I'm not just going to take all those things away. I'm not just going to smooth out the path for you. And so you can just kind of fall passively, you know, float into his blessing. He's saying, I, I'm, I'm not trying to just move you from point A to point B. I'm trying to get you to be my people. I'm trying to turn your hearts back towards me. I'm trying to get you to be worshipers in every area of your life. And so if there are things that are keeping you from me, if there are idols that are drawing you away from me and serving as a barrier between your worship and me, we're going to spend some time on those things. I'm not just inherently going to take those things away. We're going to spend some time on those things. I'm going to call you to address those things. And that's something we see over and over again. If this is what's causing a barrier between you and me, let's work on this, okay? So, as we pick up the story, they're coming to the land, right? God has promised them a land. They're coming up to the edge of the land. They're about to take the land. And at this point, um, despite the fact that they just got rescued from slavery in miraculous fashion, through supernatural intervention, the people of Israel already begin to establish a pattern of rebellion, right? And, and as we read it now, it's, it's very easy for us, and we have this tendency to uh, sort of be judgmental and be like, you guys, you, you remember when the Red Sea parted, guys? That wasn't that long ago. Like, get your act together, right? Worship the one true God. Quit worshiping the golden calf. Worship the one true God who brought you out of slavery through supernatural intervention and all these miracles, right? But the truth is, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. We're, we're very quick to, to forget our salvation, to forget the blessing of God, and turn back again to those things that enslaved us, turn back to those things that keep us from him. Um, that, again, is a pattern that we'll see regularly here. And so they wander a bit. They finally make it to the edge. God has instruction for them on how this is to go as they enter the land. Here's what you need to do. Um, and all the while, he is reinforcing over and over again that he is the one that holds the power, that he is the one that is doing the saving, okay? And so they enter into the land, and we get these stories, and again, as we have a sense of the whole, we can place the stories in context. We have stories like the Battle of Jericho, right? Which is, if you're in Sunday school, you've probably done something with the Battle of Jericho before. You might even know a song about it. The Battle of Jericho, which, as far as military strategies go, they do not study at West Point, right? It's not like what you do to win a battle. God says, here's what I need you guys to do. I need you to march around the city for numerous days, six days on the seventh day, march around a bunch of times, and then blow some trumpets and shout, walls are going to come down, you guys are going to win. They're like, all right. And so they do it, and sure enough, they, they have a victory in battle. Why, why in the world, why in the world would, would God do that? Because he's reinforcing to his people 
that he's forming for a purpose. Follow me and trust me. Your hope is found in me. Don't get too excited about your own strength. Don't get too ahead of yourselves. Trust me. You guys are entering into the land where you're going to have a place. You're going to have boundaries. Ultimately, you're going to even have cities and a temple. Don't, don't get ahead of yourself. Know, know where your identity is found, and that is in the people of God. And so he's calling them to this and forming them in this in the process. They do take the land, but again, they've already established patterns of rebellion here. Um, specifically, the one thing that pertains to the passage today is they, they fail to drive out the people that are already in the land, although God had called them to do so. All right, and again, it's important that we keep this idea of formation in view here because God's saying there's going to be people in the land with false gods that are going to entice you, and if they're going to get in the way, then you need to drive them out, okay? Just drive them out completely. Of course, they don't do it. They go in. They start making treaties. Um, the people stay, uh, and, and as a result, the false gods stay in the land, which ultimately proves to be a snare for the people of Israel, um, and so from here, we're going to look at a section of Scripture, uh, mostly from Judges here, uh, and I'm just going to let the Scripture tell the story in this part, because I could give you a summary, but it's better for you just to hear it from the source, and I think it tells it better than any summary I could give anyway. So um, this is from Judges 2, Judges chapter 2, 1 through 2. It says this, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you from Egypt. And brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? And it continues. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to their plunderers, who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. How's that for a loaded statement? They were in terrible distress. So what happens when the nation of Israel reaches a low point? What happens when they find themselves in terrible distress? I think it's fairly similar often to where you and I find ourselves, and we're in terrible distress. And maybe even the pattern that you and I, as sinful people, tend to follow, and we're in terrible distress. Tell me if this pattern sounds familiar. They were in terrible distress, and they once again cry out to the God who had saved them. They realize, the circumstances are bad. I have no hope, but I remember the God who saved me. I'm going to cry out to him. Maybe he can do something. And what happens? God acts. God does something, and he saves them. And once again, they taste his power and his goodness, and once again, they remember the great salvation that they have in him. And then, like many of us, they run right back to the things that enslave them. 
and the things that take themselves away from God. They can't run fast enough back to those things. And then what happens when they do that? They find themselves in terrible distress and repeat and repeat and repeat. And if you've ever read the book of Judges, it's mind-numbing because the cycle just repeats and repeats and repeats. And again, it's like you just want to shake them. Like, guys, step back for a moment and see this pattern. Can't you see what's happening here? You keep forgetting and you keep turning away from God and then he does great things to draw you back to himself and bless you. And when he does and when you experience blessing, you go right back to those things. And you get in distress and you cry out to God and he saves you and he blesses you again. I think it's a pattern a lot of us are familiar with. And then we get this, Judges 16 through 19, articulating just that. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. And they did not do so. And whoever the Lord raised up, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved by pity, to pity, by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down. They did not drop any of their practices or stubborn ways. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Just this spiral out of control, right? And so we get to the end of the book of Judges, and we get this cryptic statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And again, it's at this point that we can have a tendency to to read the story and be fairly judgmental toward them and be like, guys, you are spiraling out of control. Just chaos. No authority. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Completely rejected the God who had saved them, the creator God who created all good things. Completely rejected, doing whatever is right in their own eyes. But before we get too judgmental, may I suggest that if there's an anthem of our times, it's do what's right in your own eyes, right? Our our present day culture, I mean, that is like shouted from the street corners. Do what's right in your own eyes. You're the center of the universe. Stop listening to everybody else. Who cares what they say? You're the most important. You got to get yours. Don't let anybody keep you from it. Just go for it. It's you. It's you. Whatever's right in your eyes is right. Do it. Go for it. Don't let anybody tell you differently. Basically every Katy Perry song, right? <laughs> and so we're, we're, we're sort of quick to judge But that's the reality of the world we live in as well, where everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, and there's no king in the land of Israel. And by the time we get to this part in Scripture where we pick up the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, there's no king in Israel, but they want one. They want one bad, and they want one for all the wrong reasons. So we get this passage, 1 Samuel. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together 
and came to Samuel. By the way, Samuel is uh, a prophet at this time, okay? He's overseeing the, the spiritual life of Israel at this point. So the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Now listen to this. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you, Samuel. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And some scholars say this desire to have a king like the other nations, this desire to be like the other nations, is equal to basically withdrawing from the Sinai covenant, that passage that we read from Exodus earlier, where God said, you are going to be my people. You're going to be my treasured possession. If you trust me, if you follow me, if you obey me, you're going to be my, my people. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to be a nation that is a light to all the other nations. But in order to do that, you're going to be set apart. I'm going to set you up. I'm going to form you so that you're not like the other nations. You're going to be restored to me and set apart. You're going to be different. And by the time we get here, Israel and their pattern of rebellion gets to the point where they say, um, actually, we kind of think we'd like to be like the other nations. We'd we, we like to do that now. And by the way, thanks for the land, God. Thanks for, you know, bringing us out of slavery. Um, but I think we'd like to take our cues from the other nations that don't know you. We'd like a king like them. And, and it grieves Samuel, and it grieves God. Um, and basically what we have is two offices emerge in Israel at this point. We have the prophet and the king, which is fascinating when you study the life of the nation of Israel. You have the prophets, uh, people like Samuel, people like Elijah and Elisha, and you have kings, people like um, Saul, David, Solomon, people like this. And this kind of dual role, this kind of dual authority is really kind of symbolic in some way, but it's more than symbolic of really this tension that's going to play out in the rest of Israel's time where they have political aims and spiritual aims. And there's a real tension there. And they're not quite sure which one's driving the ship, right? Spiritual aims and political aims. And again, before we get too judgmental in our 21st century position, I I would suggest um, we're still wrestling with that tension, aren't we? As God's people, the political aim versus the spiritual aim. And may I suggest maybe an even more poignant tension for us is the economic aim versus the spiritual aim, right? And so for here in, in the nation of Israel, you have, uh, you have good kings and bad kings, mostly bad, um, and their pursuit of political aims at the expense of their relationship with God. Their rejection of their identity in relationship to God is ultimately the downfall of Israel. They, they begin to forget God and they begin to have an agenda that is detached from his agenda, which, let's remind ourselves, is the redemption of all creation, okay? 
And so they detach and they have their own goals and they have their own agenda. Um, we have good kings and bad kings. We have voices in the wilderness of prophets crying out, calling people to come back. Um, but the pattern is set and it's going downwards for Israel. Although the high water mark of Israel comes under the reign of King Solomon, right? King Solomon, this is about 480 years or so after the Exodus, which is a long time if you step back and think about it. This is a long time that God has called his people and is forming his people. And the high water mark of the nation comes when Solomon is king. Solomon himself, um, just a super complex individual. Um, but under Solomon, uh, the nation of Israel is, is many. They, they are, in fact, like the stars in the sky. And under Solomon, they have taken possession of the land. And under Solomon, they have relative rest from their enemies. And under Solomon, they now have a, an established mount of worship. They now have the temple built in which they can interact with their God. This is their place. They, they have arrived into that promise, and they are enjoying it. But even Solomon himself like the nation at large, turns to other gods and starts worshiping other gods. And from this point forward, it goes downhill. And within a couple hundred years, this is a complete gloss over that we'll expand upon more next week. Within a couple hundred years, the nation is split in two. This nation that God brought in and gave them the land through their political aims and infighting and fighting outside enemies has now split in two. There's a north and a south. And very soon after that, both get taken into captivity. Both get conquered and taken out of the land. And as that happens, as they're conquered, by 586 B.C., even the temple is laying in ruins. It's crumbled. It's destroyed. So we pause here. And we look back at the story. We look back at the big picture. And what God was doing and calling his people and what he called them to so God, if you, if you follow me, if you trust me, you're going to be my treasured possession among all the peoples. And you're going to experience my blessing. Just follow me and trust me. And he gives them instruction and calls them to that. But they struggle. They struggle to do so. And in fact, this passage I thought was poignant for us. This is from a book called Drama of Scripture. Uh, by Craig Bartholomew and Mike Goheen, it says this, as we follow the biblical story of Israel, at this point we might well be tempted to write the end. For the Israelites being marched off as slaves to Babylon, it certainly must seem like the end. And what has come of God's great promises to Abraham, his covenant with Israel at Sinai, of his vow that David's house would go on forever? The house of the Lord himself has been destroyed. Where was the Lord while Babylon triumphed over Israel? Have God's purposes for his people finally run into the sand? Worse, have God's purposes to redeem the creation through Israel failed? This is a low point, is it not? So we ask ourselves the question, did, did Israel fail? Did Israel fail? The answer is yes, they did. Spectacularly, Israel failed. They were supposed to be a people defined by their Redeemer, but they forgot the grace that they had received. And they were supposed to follow God, but they were doing what was right in their own eyes. They were supposed to elevate Yahweh as the one true God, but they worshipped idols. And they were supposed to be a nation of priests, but they pursued political agendas instead. 
and they were supposed to be set apart, a light to the nations, but they wanted to be like the nations. They didn't want to be God's treasured possession. And as a result, they missed out on the blessing of living in close communion with God. But is this a failure on God's part? Has his plan derailed now? Did he make a mistake? And say no. Because God's plan continues, and we'll see that, especially as we look at it next week, um, God will use even their rebellion. He will use even the exile to accomplish his purposes. His plan continues on. And what we learn here is that uh, a national, um, organized, physical institution, a, a political entity with boundaries, was never meant to be the carrier of the promise to Abraham. And never will be, right? We can never draw a boundary on the map and say, here are the people of God. Nor can we even draw a boundary around a particular building and say, here are the people of God. The people of God, the carriers of the promise of Abraham, are scattered. Are scattered. And God's still calling people to himself. And then we ask the question, maybe, okay, did did God choose the wrong people here? <laughs> Would he have been better off? with? Was there someone else, a different nation, a different people group he could have chosen that would have done a better job than Israel because they, they failed so spectacularly and would say, no. God didn't choose the wrong people. He chose people who are like all the other people. So we have a universal human condition called sin in which we're hostile to God in our natural state. Okay. The nation of Israel, the story that we see here, it illuminates the universal human condition. And that's a theme that we continue to see. And in fact, this tension of God calling people who are too weak to save themselves, calling people to a task who are too weak to do it alone, this is the dramatic tension that's going to play out in the rest of the gospel story. And we talk about the gospel as a, a story, a narrative, a film, a television show, that is the dramatic tension, that God is at work calling people so that they could experience his blessing, calling people that he's going to use for his purposes to be on mission with him to the world, and these people are too weak to do it on their own. What a dramatic tension that's going to play out. But the truth is, if all things are going to be made right, if we're going to taste salvation, the victory is going to be God's. That's what we learn here. If things are going to be restored, and they are, that is our hope, the victory is going to be God's. And if we are going to live as God's people and participate in his mission, we need to be transformed to do that. We need him to form us. And of course, since the time of the judges, since the time of the kings, a lot has unfolded. A lot of the gospel narrative has unfolded, and we now live on the other side of the cross. We now understand who Jesus is, the fulfillment of these promises. We now understand the hope that we have in him. And recognizing this tension of God calling people to know him and love him and follow him, people that he's going to form to be a light to the nations, but those people being too weak to do it on their own and those people being too weak to transform themselves, I rest in this verse right here, Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We're still weak. We're weak just like the nation of Israel was weak. 
But the beautiful truth that we rest in is we're not meant to save ourselves. We rest in not our own faithfulness, but in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And even though we are ungodly and too weak to do it ourselves, Jesus Christ is not. He is the faithful one. He is the righteous one. And it's in him that we have our hope of salvation. And though the victory of God is secure in Jesus, God's mission continues, right? We look forward to the day when Jesus returns and all things are made new and where the work is completed. We're not there yet. We're living in the already, not yet. We're tasting it, but it's not fully realized. And we look for the day when it's fully realized and God is still at work. He is still calling people to himself. He is still making his name known among the nations. He's still sending us out to do that, to be a light to the nations. And he's calling us to be set apart. Not withdrawn, but to be set apart. He's calling us to be his people. And that task of figuring out what that looks like is the task of the local church. As we gather here, as we gather in redemption communities, as we pursue our understanding of who God is and the great grace, the great salvation and redemption that we have is, as we pursue that, as we address sin in our lives, as we get those things out of our lives that are serving as a barrier between us and God, that are ensnaring us and pulling us away from him, as we do that in a local community, we're pursuing being the people of God, set apart, not like the nations, sent into the nations to make his name great. And knowing that we're weak, knowing that we need to be transformed, God is at work in that as well. Transforming us, people whose hope is found in Jesus Christ, to be like Jesus, the faithful one. Transforming us, the ungodly, those of us who aren't faithful, to be like the faithful one. Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose and we know what that is for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son he is forming us even now he's calling us even now to be his people and the beautiful thing he has given us his spirit indwelling in all of us we celebrate pentecost this morning we celebrate the fact that for all believers all of those who are found in Jesus Christ God has given us his spirit the spirit of the faithful one so that we could be transformed as we participate with the spirit as the spirit teaches us and convicts us gives us courage gives us strength to live as God's people to love God and to love our neighbor and because he is forming us Again, there will be trials, there will be testing, there will also be opportunity, right? Because he's forming us. Because in his grace, he's not just going to keep us where we're at. He's not just going to keep us where we're at. He's going to call us to something. He's going to call us to respond. And the question is then for us, as followers of Jesus Christ, knowing what we know, how, how, how do we respond? <clears throat> knowing that we could never earn it. We're not trying to earn it. We're not trying to pay it back. We never could. But will we follow him? Will we trust him in every circumstance, whether it's trial or blessing or opportunity, whatever faces us, will we remember? Will we be faithful so that we can experience the blessing of God, so that he could use us to be a light to the nations? So when that temptation comes at work, when we're stressed out at home, 
when that diagnosis comes back and it's bad news? How about this? When we find out that we have more resources than we really need, how do we respond then? When we find that our neighbor is hurting, when we find that our neighbor is celebrating, when we find that our neighbor is lashing out, when we find that our neighbor is struggling for answers, how, how do we respond? How do we respond? And to that, I would leave you with this passage of Scripture from the book of Hebrews. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today. Start with today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the day of rebellion. And God's calling us to be his people, to remember the great salvation that we could never earn, we could never do, the great grace that we've received, and we respond wanting nothing more than to live in communion with him and experience his blessing, the richness of that, and to participate in his mission to see all things redeemed and all things restored. Let's be his people.